Like Kendra said, we did finish um, the book of Hebrews. And whenever I finish a, a series like that, especially an extensive series, I always feel a bit sad. Uh, for some reason, I'm just living with this book, you know, for so long. And, and it's like, oh, it's kind of come to an end. And it's kind of, a, um, I don't know, a little bit melancholy to go on to something else. And uh, so we're doing a, a, a summer um, series this morning. A, uh, called Why Christianity Makes Sense. And I'll hopefully explain that a little bit further as we go on. How many of you ever seen instructions like this? Okay. If you have, it's because you have bought a piece of furniture from Ikea. Uh, Ikea, I think, is a Danish company. and It's really popular in Europe because uh, people have such small houses there. And you, to put in furniture, you have to bring them in a box, you know, and then assemble it there in your house. Uh, my daughter is one of those people. And uh, they... They have a really small house, and they have to buy flat furniture like this and then assemble it into their house. And uh, after they were first married, they, were, they bought one that uh, bought a couch to put down in their little bla- their basement, and we're putting together, and uh, Pete said, yeah, that's the closest we've ever come to divorce, <laughs> is uh, trying to put together one of these, one of these things like this. And I, I've put, a, put together a few myself, and I've discovered that if you put little bowls out and just put every little piece that they label in separate and then lay out the pieces and you know what you're talking about, you got the, you got the, you know, you can correspond to the diagram and stuff, you do much, much better. But regardless, even around the third or fourth step, you reach this point where, okay, this doesn't make any sense. I, I can't, I can't figure out what this is supposed to do. This, either they forgot to put a piece in the box or the diagram doesn't work or somehow or another, I've got to go, grow a third hand so I can hold two pieces together and grab the Allen wrench and, put the, and, and join them together, and it just doesn't make sense. <clears throat> well, when I was thought about uh, this, what I want to do this, this summer, that's kind of how I feel about the world. I look at the world and just say, this doesn't make sense. You know, I, we want it to make sense, and we think it should make sense, and we thought we want to put it all together and get the pieces together, but regardless of how hard we try, we just can't do it. Uh, we, we want it to make sense, but it, we just can't make it. We just can't do it. It doesn't seem to make sense. And it would be, it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. Uh, but it just doesn't make sense. It ought to make sense. Uh, about a month ago, I attended, or attended in those days of Zoom, you know, a, a webinar. And the webinar was called uh, Telling the Greatest Story Ever Told. And it was a, it was a webinar on sharing your faith and, sharing, and, and evangelism in this a, a day and age. And it was out of England, actually, uh, out of, put out by Premier Magazine, which is kind of the Christianity Today of, of England, of the UK. And uh, the contributors were, were a theologian named N.T. Wright, a, a historian named Tom Holland, a youth worker named Claire Williams, and then they had um, Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell, on there. And uh, I haven't seen Josh McDowell since I was in my 20s. Man, has he gotten old. But <laughs> and... Uh, if you haven't ever heard Josh McDowell, he does a thing with apologetics and, and kind of defending the Christian faith. And it was really good because the two of them were together, Sean and, and, his, and his father Josh, and they were talking about the differences between when, when Josh was doing college campuses and, and youth work, and now Sean is working on college campuses. And just how the, the, the message is, not the message itself, but the way you communicate the message has changed and how that's been adapted and uh, how we've had to, to kind of adjust on that. So it was really fascinating. And uh, N.T. Wright did one on these, these things that he's calling seven values. Actually, he called them signposts or something else. 
But uh, he talked about seven values, and uh, his argument was that these things that we have in our hearts, in our bones, uh, that are, are common throughout all humanity. They, they transcend borders, they transcend languages, they transcend history. They are all a part of every single human being. And of course, he says that's because we are all created in the image of God. And all these things are stamped onto us. And these things are, are kind of abstract. We don't have a good word for them. Even we put the word out there, it doesn't really say exactly what we want it to say. Like I can point to a piano and say, that's a piano. We all know that's a piano. But I can say love and it's kind of esoteric. It's kind of what, what is that out there? But he says all these things point to a creator. All these things are deep down in the image of God and they point us to something greater than ourselves. And he says that, that uh, you, you can trace it through all of history, that our, our legends are full of these items, uh, these, these seven values, our, our literature, our poetry, the drama, uh, songs, everything is, it has to do with some of these things. Even our sitcoms you know, reflect these seven values, these seven things. But the problem is that these seven things are also broken. We look at them and they're, they're kind of puzzling, but they're more than puzzling, they're actually broken. Uh, we know that these things are good and, and true. For example, we know justice is good and we, we want to bring justice, uh, but even the best systems make mistakes. Uh, even the best of justice systems, the, sometimes the guilty go free and sometimes the innocent are convicted. And if it happens too often, and we start to question whether there, there's money involved or other motives involved, then we start to distrust the system. And the same thing is true with relationships. We know those are important, and yet, and yet even some of our most important relationships, we, we misjudge, we have misunderstandings, and we have conflict almost at an alarming rate. We do this, and almost to the point where sometimes it even damages the relationship for, forever, for good. And so we have these values, but we really haven't figured out how to do them. We're, they're broken. And they point to something greater, but at the same time, they point to a problem, something that's very serious. Uh, the, um, the seven values that he mentioned are justice, love, truth, beauty, spirituality, freedom, and power. And some of these values actually pull against each other somewhat. For example, uh, we, relationships, love is, is important, but also freedom. And we also know that sometimes those two are in conflict. They pull against each other. We have to give up some of our freedoms in order to enter in certain relationships. I don't know if you saw this the other day. I was, so I was reading this article to, to Sue. There was this couple, I think, in the Ukraine, and they were having problems in the relationship. So they had the brilliant idea that they would handcuff themselves together. <laughs> So for 23 days, they handcuffed themselves together, and guess what happened when they finally broke the handcuffs? They split up. And she says, I'm free at last, you know? Well, those relationships are important, but also freedom is in, is in tension with this. Justice and spirituality. We used to have this big conflict, whether we get involved in justice issues, and people would say, no, it's all about spirituality. It's all about what's happening in your, in the, in your soul and saving your soul, and those two kind of pull against each other. So how do we deal with this? I believe that N.T. Wright was correct. And that is that these seven things help us make sense of the world. It helps us understand why it's broken, why it is the way it is, because these things are broken. 
But at the same time, it also paves the way, and this was the whole point, for the Christian message. Amen. That we can reach, preach the Christian message that explains what these things are and how we can regain them and how they can restore them. That there was this creator God who became a person in order to put things right. To put everything back together, to put everything right that we have broken. That he grieves over this collapse of his good world. And he came and entered the world to put it to, put it to rights, Amen. to put it correct. So I thought this, when I heard that, I thought, you know, this could make an interesting summer series. Kind of isolated topics here. And so that's what we're going to do this summer. And this morning we're going to look at, 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 uh, at justice and uh, the importance of justice. And we all have this Christian message that we know that there is justice and it's important. It's part of us. It's something that's common to our humanity. I mean, you can go to any, any playground and you will hear children say, that's not fair. Did they ever have a course in the philosophy of ethics? No. They just know that something is not fair. And you take that to the global level. And we say, this isn't fair. And wars break out because of some perceived injustice. Diplomacy happens because we try to figure out which injustices we need to correct and which ones maybe we can just gloss over. And it raises up to even to the, to the global level. And we're all for justice as individuals. We're all for justice. And the kids are all for justice. But we're also willing to bend it for our own benefit. You give a kid you know, a couple of brownie pieces and they're supposed to share, one will take the larger piece because they're hungrier, hungrier than the other one or they like chocolate better than their brother does. And maybe you had a mom who did the same thing my mom did who would make one person cut it and the other person got to pick the piece to try to balance it out, you know, being justice. Well, we take that to the global level. All countries, all nations, all people say we want justice. But when it comes to our interest, we're willing to bend that just a bit so that justice bends into our favor. Well, God is a God of justice. The Bible is the, the, one of the main things of the scripture is justice. All you have to do is go home and if you got in a concordance, look up justice and just see the list. I mean, the, the prophets, that's all it is, is about justice. We all want it. And when we talk about God's justice and God's wrath, it's not because he's irritable. Uh, it's not because he is uh, kind of a, a curmudgeon, you know, who wants to take away people's funds. God's justice comes into, comes into effect when it meets injustice. It's his love coming into friction with injustice. That's when we see his judgment. His judgment. It is actually a manifestation of his love. It's when it contradicts his love that we see his justice. In fact, his justice actually proves his love. I submit that the book of John is a story of justice. It is a complete story of justice. We like to the, like, um, the, the know the story of John. We, 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 we love those passages like John 3.16. And that's one of the reasons I wanted Ronnie to read that passage this morning. Because it has that wonderful verse that most of us in here know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And guess what? We ignore the paragraph after that. We have no, we don't pay any attention to it. When it's about justice and it's about judgment. And he says, those who avoid the light, they're already condemned because they don't want their deeds to be exposed to the light. And what this whole thing is about is Jesus putting things right. And so you have this wonderful verse and wonderful paragraph before John 3.16, then you have John 3.16 that talks about God's love, and then you have this section of justice, meaning that justice is an expression of his love. When it meets injustice, when it meets wickedness, we would expect no less. A love that allows injustice is not very lovable. That's, those two things are important that they go together. And John's book, John's book is a whole story about this. It starts off talking about darkness. At the very beginning in chapter 1, he says, he says and, and he, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was the life, and the life was the light to all people. And right off the bat, we're talking about darkness. And this darkness carries this theme all the way through the book of John. And even in John chapter 3, which Ronnie just read, it's about Nicodemus coming to Jesus when? At night. It's all about the darkness, this darkness that, that is the power that opposes God's creation, that opposes God's love, this, this darkness that maybe uh, is a distance between God and people, or this darkness where we just see, see Jesus right before our eyes and we choose to ignore it. It's about this darkness, it's this, this, this permeating darkness that covers over creation. And it follows all the way through the book of John. And there's two very disturbing things about darkness in the book of John. One is that there is an adversary. There is a force that is out to destroy God's good creation. There is something out there. We have, we have uh, um, anthropomorphized it. You know, you've given it personality by calling it the Satan or the adversary or the accuser. But he's out there and he opposes God's good creation. It is an adversary that we can't ignore. This darkness in the book of John is not some random event every now and then. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It is part of the main, the main message of John. Now, when we like John, we like to hear about the comfort, the peace, and the hope. But I would say his message about the darkness is also about comfort, peace, and hope, because his message is about overcoming the darkness. His message is about putting it right. There is an adversary, and it is corrupt, and it is harsh. In John chapter 12, if I can, there we go. In John chapter 12, he says this, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up upon the earth, will draw all people to myself. The first disciples who heard this probably immediately thought Caesar, Rome. But Jesus went on to say, no, this is a deeper root. This is a deeper adversary. I'm not talking about the agents. I'm not talking about the mouthpieces. I'm talking about the root of evil. You think Rome is your enemy, but there is a deeper enemy. Amen. And he says, this is the one who is coming to the world, the ruler of the world, but he will be driven out. He has come to put it right. The second disturbing thing about 
darkness is that Jesus himself is a victim of it. It appears that he is a victim of this very darkness, of this very evil, the very wickedness, that he suffers under that. The darkness that Nicodemus comes to. That he comes in the trial and execution of Jesus Christ. You start to see it start to form around chapter 7, 8, and 9. And in chapter 8, you remember the story of, of the, the woman caught in adultery. And they're about to commit murder. They're about to kill her in the name of justice. And Jesus comes along, and the real question is, the real attack is on him saying, is he going to uphold the Moses law, or what's he going to do? And so what Jesus does is he turns it around, and he accuses them of sin and hypocrisy. And he actually saves them from committing murder. Amen. But they, they go on. And now all of a sudden these attacks, these attacks, Jesus is there to attack the shadowy figure, to attack the injustice, and he's there to attack, and then the, the adversary comes back and, and attacks back, and you have these counterattacks, and it builds and builds and builds all the way up to the execution of Jesus Christ, and it appears that Pilate holds all the cards, because he does. Judas goes in to betray Jesus. When? At night. When the arresting party comes to get him, they come with torches and lanterns and weapons at night. He stands before Pilate, who has all the cards. The chief priest says, we have no king but Caesar. These are the chief priests of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. And then they nail the sign above the, the tool of execution. This is the king of the Jews. This is what we do to people who claim another, another lordship. This is what we do to them. And really what happened now is that the, the enemy did its worst. Caesar, Pilate, the chief priests, Judas, humans, they all did their very worst on Jesus. The enemy does their worst on Jesus. And we look at the cross and face the truth. That's us. We did that. We are broken people. And we did that. That is the worst that we can do. But of course, the story doesn't end there. They did their worst. And Jesus overcame their worst. Jesus had victory over their worst. And their power was exhausted. We, the enemy, we did our worst and Jesus overcame it. The power no longer has power. We have overcome it in Christ. At the point of his crucifixion, that new power was launched. The new creation was launched. I love it that John begins with the creation story. But what would have jumped off the page to those first readers is not how God created the world and created the universe. That, not, that wouldn't have been important to them. What would have jumped off those pages is that we have a very good God creating a very good creation. No other creation story says that. You go back into the ancient world and you look at other creation stories, they don't say that. But we have a very good God who created a very good creation. And now he is brokenhearted that the creation has collapsed into wickedness 
and injustice. And he has come along to defeat it. Defeat the power that is behind Judas. Defeat the power that is behind Caesar. Defeat the power that is behind the chief priest, behind Pilate, behind uh, the, 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 the crew that comes with the lanterns and the torches and the weapons. That's the power that is defeated at the cross. And it was in that moment that this justice was established. A new kind of justice. Not the justice of Rome that puts rival kings to death on a cross, not the kind of justice that seeks revenge and retribution, but this is a justice that restores. Amen. In the name of Christ, the justice that restores us and restores his world that says the power has been defeated and there's a new creating power that's launched onto the universe. This is the victory. So what does that have to do with us? How does this restoration justice be launched in our world today. How do we do it? Well, really, it's a, it's a question of discipleship. It's a question of living the kingdom living. It's a question of following Jesus. Yes, that power is launched, and we wait for it to be culminated. We wait for Jesus to return and to where, where the culmination comes to completion of this kingdom. But in the meantime, we are here bringing the future to the present. He is inviting every single one of us to participate in this kingdom living. So it really is a question of discipleship. So I'm going to mention four things about this, about justice in our world right now. Uh, I have a lot to say about this. This is the nitty-gritty uh, that restorative justice is what operates today. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on this, so I can... Talk, go, I can talk a whole lot on this, but I am not going to today. But I am going to try to boil it down to four things about the question of discipleship. First of all, we need an overarching view of what the kingdom is all about. We need an overarching view of what the kingdom is all about. Jesus is looking for kingdom people. The resurrection happens in John chapter 20. But that's not the end of the book. We have chapter 21. And in chapter 21, Jesus is looking toward the future. And he commissions his disciples to say, this is what you are to be about. You need to go about doing these things. Now, I'd mentioned seven at the very beginning. And I want to mention this really quickly before we get too deep, too far deep in this. First of all, no individual can practice and do all seven of those. Okay? Uh, we, we need to have them all in our lives. And we need, as we work and as we grow, all those 17 to, you know, the brokenness needs to be repaired. But some of us are really called toward a work of justice and others are called in a work of, work of relationships, et cetera, et cetera. No one person can do all those things perfectly. By the same token, no one church can do all seven of those things at the same time. But the wider church, the universal church, the global church, this is what we are to be about. We are to be about doing these things. And the first thing we need is an overarching view of what the kingdom is about. That is a transforming the world of what the world as it is to what the world ought to be. That all kingdom followers are invited to do this. We need to start teaching the whole story. So often we read the Bible like as if it were a newspaper. 
And I picked up the newspaper. I was down in the, in the lobby this week at Horizon, and I saw the, the Gorge News, you know, and I picked it up because it caught my attention that there was a man in Hood River struck by lightning. Do you know that? I just found that out. Man in Hood River struck by lightning. That's what caught my eyes. I'm reading that. Well, then on the same page, there's something else about the library, and there's something else about what's going on in Washington, and, and all these articles, are, but they're not connected. Well, the Bible's not like that. It's very diverse, but it's all got a big story, and we need to start teaching that big story. And when I was in youth ministry, I used a lot, a lot of guilt to get my kids to do things, you know. And I quickly realized that's not working very well. Uh, so, but then I, I had this overwhelming experience of grace. And so you kind of swing over to the, to the grace side. And they always say balance is what you pass on your way to your next extreme, you know. So that's what I, you know, swinging back and forth. But we got to preach the whole, the whole picture. First of all, that God's created a good creation. This is his yes. He's a very good God who created a very good creation. But then there's guilt. Human beings said, no, we want to run this show by ourselves. We don't want any part of it. We say no. We reject God. We don't want to participate in God's plan. But God says, yes, he comes back with grace and takes it all on him and launches a new power, and this is his yes. And he's saying no will not be the final answer. Injustice will not have the last word, he says. And so it comes in a way that's totally different than we expect. And that means gratitude, our acceptance. That means it's our yes back to him. That we do everything out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Amen. This is our purpose. This is our reason. This is why we do justice. We are all invited to be participants in his kingdom work. Number two, action must be paired with scriptural reflection. What I mean by that is we can't say we're going to all go, <clears throat> we're going to all go and do, uh, uh, do justice work or, or whatever, like the, like, like you guys here training and stuff, we're all going to do this, and then be it separated from scriptural reflection. Nor can we just do scriptural reflection and not do any action. That doesn't work either. They've got to be together. You've got to have them together. We hosted a lot of mission teams, a lot of, of short-term missions uh, in the years there in Mexico. Just because Mexico is close, a lot of people send teams to Mexico. We hosted a lot of them. And the worst ones were the ones who tried to separate the two. Uh, some, had, some youth pastors seemed to have the attitude that it was just all about Bible, just more Bible study. You learn more Bible, you're going to do more, you're going to do better things. And the others were like, they had the, the, the philosophy that if we send them, they will grow. And just send them and they will grow. But then they go back to their homes and their states and in, in, in back into Chicago or wherever they're from, and things don't change. They had a great experience had a great time meeting some new people. They felt good about themselves. They painted a school, great. They go back, nothing changes. You've got to have the both of them together. The experience, the action, as well as the scripture reflection. Put them, put them together. Without it, they can't sustain one another. Number three, allow the Holy Spirit to sensitize us. When we are invaded by the Holy Spirit, we become inwardly motivated. We become inwardly changed. The Spirit of Christ then makes us aware of the injustice around us. 
It makes us aware of what we're seeing, of the needs around us. And we almost don't even know how this happens. I didn't mean to, to mention this, but I'm going to mention something that Carolyn Stevens sent to me. This quote that she sent me is this wonderful quote. I won't, won't read it direct, directly, but it has to do with, this, with the, the, the cross of Christ getting embedded in our hearts and sometimes just changes without we really knowing it, without us cognitively realizing it. But the, heart, but the cross of Christ is there and it changes, it makes us more sensitive to the needs and to the, to, um, uh, the injustices around us. And so we start to care for, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, we start to care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the imprisoned, before we even realize it. Maybe not even a cognitive decision, but it starts to change us. And we start to care more. Opposing abortion is no longer just a campaign slogan. But we start to go, why would a woman make such a heart-wrenching decision as this? And that's one of the reasons why, why I support the, the Hope Family Clinic here in Hood River, because they ask that question. Why would she do this? What are her needs? Is it economic? Is it poverty? Is it loss of a job? Is it shame? What are those needs? That is much, much deeper than just holding a sign. It sensitizes us to care why we do this, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, Jesus sends his disciples out. And he says, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you are to do for the world what I did for Israel. You are to be me in the world. Just as Moses was up on the mountain and he looked at the promised land and said, we're going to go and conquer it. Well, Jesus gets up on the mountain and looks at the promised land, but he's looking at the whole world and says, we're going to go conquer it. But you're going to conquer it by being like me, by bringing justice. And finally, oh, I wanted to quote, use this quote by Barbara Holmes. She's a, a, a theologian. She says, a contemplative Christian is someone who knows that they don't know everything and trusts that they are being held by something much larger, wiser, and more loving than themselves. It is these very qualities that enable them then to act on behalf of other and communities in need. It's that Holy Spirit that moves us, and we may not know everything, but there's something that happens on the inside that we know we are held by someone who is much larger, much wiser, and more loving than ourselves. And guess what? We start to be wiser and loving to those around us. It's a transformation that sometimes we just can't explain. And the last one, we move from doing kingdom things to being kingdom people. We move away from just, being, just doing kingdom tasks, which is great, but we become kingdom people. In other words, we don't just get a new vision, we get new eyes, we get new hearts. We actually become kingdom people. We look at things from the big picture and we look at what's going on around us and not just doing simple tasks. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army said, we can't keep picking up bodies at the bottom of the mountain and not climb to the hill to see who or what is throwing them over the edge. We become kingdom people and see the big picture and see what's going on around us. And we 
become Jesus for the world. Now, <clears throat> we know if you read uh, Bill's letter and the connections a couple of weeks ago, you realize that, that we are now a minority in our country. Christians are a minority. And I don't know if that's a, necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, but it does worry us that, uh, that the population of Christians is shrinking. And it also worries me that young people are leaving the church in droves. And we have to think, what is this? Amen. And what happens is that pastors and youth pastors, we start depending on techniques. Because it's like the ultimate goal is to get a large turnout. And if that's the ultimate goal, then we start depending on techniques. Well, I am convinced we spent a lot of years, Sue and I spent a lot of years with you in, in working with high school students and college students, and I'm convinced that they are not leaving the church because we don't entertain them well enough. They're leaving the church because we don't challenge them enough. We don't dare them to risk. We don't dare them to live the gospel life, the kingdom life. I mean, when I've got a kid who picks Karl Marx over Jesus Christ, I've got a problem. It's a problem because I'm not communicating what Jesus called us to do. I am not communicating the gospel clear enough. Matthew 25 is like the core for social justice and justice in our world. It's the, it's the passage where Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. Most of you remember that. He, he, is, uh, he says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me and I was in prison and you visited me. And the response was, we didn't know that was you. And he says, I came in that need. Now, we used to joke in the Methodist church that if that had been a Methodist listening, we would have said, we didn't know that was you. If we did, we would have formed an action committee. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't know that. But this is what he says. This is, what, this is the core of kingdom living. But it's not a checklist. And we're in danger if we're thinking that this is a checklist of things that I got to do as, the, as a kingdom person, as a Christian. And, and checklist Christianity does not work. If, if the conservatives have a checklist of usually kind of personal morality, usually in the area of sexuality, and you check these things of moral purity, and this is, you know, I, this is my checklist Christianity. Liberals tend to be social justice. We do this, 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 then we're, they're doing it. Those checklists are worthless. When we get into checklist Christianity, we're saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you stay here in the car while it's idling, and I'll take it from here. Either way, it just leaves Jesus on the sidelines. He is saying, this is what kingdom people do. This is what kingdom people do. They're sensitive to the needs, and they meet the needs around them. This is not checklist Christianity. The needs of the poor, the hungry, are met. We used to have a group that would, that would um, uh, had a rotation of, of serving in a soup kitchen in the, the college group at Northwestern. It was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And the lady that was in charge, she prayed every single night before the people come in for the soup kitchen. And they, she would always pray, Jesus, we know you're coming and standing in line tonight. Help us to treat you well. That was the prayer every single night. This is not about politics. This is not about proving I'm right or proving I'm righteous at all. This is about being closer to Jesus. 
And he's saying that if you put distance between me, between yourself and the hungry, between you and the thirsty, you and the naked, you and the prison, then you are isolating yourself from me. From me. I mentioned that the, <clears throat> that the prophets describe this. It's all about that. And he tells, in Prophet Isaiah in chapter 65, he paints a picture of what this world is going to look like and what we are striving to transform the world. Let me just read that. I'm going to close with this. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. God says this, For I am about to create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, or they, <clears throat> for, they, for they shall be offspring blessed of the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw and the ox. But the serpent, its food will be dust. And they shall not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the picture he paints for the future. Let's pray together.